I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiberfueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant U, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing. We're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. I'm Rip Esselstyn, and welcome to the Plant Strong Podcast. The mission at Plant Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plant Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. If you have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, then this episode is definitely for you. We currently have 37 million Americans that are living with type 2 diabetes. That is 11% of the population. But this episode isn't just for you. Did you know that a staggering 96 million Americans are walking around unknowingly with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes? We are in need of a type 2 diabetes revolution, and leading the charge are the authors who wrote the book by the same name, Jose Tejero and Diana Lacalzi. As you're going to hear about today, Diana, who is a registered dietitian and certified diabetes care and education specialist, along with Jose, an exercise physiologist, are here to help you achieve non-diabetic blood sugar levels while enjoying carbohydrates, yes, I said carbohydrates, along with copious amounts of other delicious whole plant-based foods. The simple lifestyle changes that Diana and Jose espouse focus on the reversal of insulin resistance, which is the root cause of high blood sugar. Their new book, The Type 2 Diabetes Revolution, just came out on November 7th, 
And here to discuss it with me are Diana and Jose. So get ready, my cruciferous cousins. A revolution is afoot. A type 2 diabetes revolution. All right, Jose and Diana, welcome you two to the Plant Strong Podcast. This is your first time. You guys are Plant Strong Podcast virgins. <laughs> we are. We are, yeah. we are. Thank you for having us, Rip. It's, it's truly an honor to be here. Well, it's an honor to have you guys, especially in light of the fact that you guys have just come out with this new book, Here She Blows Right Here, The Type 2 Diabetes Revolution. And boy, do we ever need a revolution around diabetes. And, and you guys are, uh, are quite the experts. So congrats on that. Um, you know, I want to dive into a lot of the specifics that you guys have in the book, but before we do, I'd like to take a 10,000 foot view here because your dedication to this book is basically to the millions of people that are struggling with pre and type two diabetes. And it, it right now, there's no doubt this is a major scourge on this society and, and frankly, the world right now. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, let's just jump right in. Tell me, Diana and Jose, what, what, are the, what do the numbers look like? How many people have pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes? And what are some of the things that happen with this disease? Yeah, yeah so currently there's 37 million people with diabetes in the United States. So that's about 11% of the US population. And of those 37 million, 90 to 95% have type two diabetes. So the majority is has, has been diagnosed with type two diabetes or not diagnosed. So a lot of people actually don't even know they have it. I believe it's one in five people who have diabetes haven't been diagnosed. And then another 96 million adults in the United States have prediabetes. And if nothing is done to um, reverse prediabetes or stop it in its tracks, um, it may develop to type 2 diabetes. And I believe it's roughly about 70% of all cases of prediabetes will turn to type 2 diabetes. So it's a pretty big problem that we're dealing with. Uh, Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, And you also write that there's roughly 96 million Americans that are pre-diabetic, 96. And you know, the population of this country is what, 350, 360 million. But you also say that of that, those 96 million, and this, this number absolutely blows my mind. 80% don't know that they're pre-diabetic or type two diabetic. I mean, how can that be the case? Yeah, that, that is the scary part, honestly. (laughs) Um, one of the reasons is because diabetes is a really silent condition. So a lot of the symptoms don't really manifest themselves until you have full-blown type 2 diabetes. And in our society, our healthcare system, we don't really practice preventative measures, right? You're not really tested for type 2 diabetes unless you have one of the risk factors or unless you're over the age of 45. So unless you're getting your blood sugar tested or your A1C tested, a lot of people just don't know where they stand when it comes to type 2 diabetes. Got it. So Jose, tell me a little bit about like some of the like right now in this country, for example, it's the eighth leading cause of death. What, what about 
kidney failure? What about blindness? What about amputation of limbs? What's the story with those, those things? Yeah. So Rip, here's the thing. People don't die of type two diabetes. People die of the complications of living with high blood sugar for too long. When our blood sugar is elevated, it damages literally every single organ of our body. When we carry toxic amounts of blood that touches literally all of our cells, every single cell is getting damaged. And that is why people are dying of heart disease, of kidney failure. They are losing their vision. They are experiencing neuropathy, which is damage of your nervous system. And that is what is truly scary, that the, the complications is what is leading to, to the deaths in this country. And so everything you just described there, the um, eyesight, blindness, mm -hmm. kidney failure, uh, you know, amputation of lower extremities, are these all little vessels that just get problematic? For yes. the most so like, like I mentioned, your, your blood is touching every cell of our body. They, our blood is touching our nervous system as well. And high amounts of, of blood, so sorry, high amounts of glucose in your blood is what is toxic to the nerve endings. And the nerve endings are very delicate in, in our eyes, in our nephrons, in our kidneys, uh, in our nervous system, in, in our extremities, like our hands and feet. And that is why uh, type 2 diabetes is one of the leading causes of amputations of fingers, toes, and actually full limbs got it now all right good so that that to me is kind of like the ten thousand foot view now mm -hmm. diana and jose why should we listen to you guys like <laughs> tell me a little bit about each one of you and your your credentials and how long have you been trying to master pre and type 2 diabetes that's a great question so i can start my journey with type 2 diabetes really started from the beginning, from as soon as I became a dietitian. So I'm a registered dietitian and a certified diabetes care and education specialist. And type 2 diabetes runs in my family. My mom is Puerto Rican and it runs on the my mom's side of the family. I've seen many of my family members struggle with type 2 diabetes. My grandfather passed away from diabetes complications. So it's something that mm. I knew from the start, um, I wanted to really focus on helping people with type 2 diabetes, especially because um, nutrition plays such a big role in not only the development of type 2 diabetes, but also in the prevention of it and in the treatment of it. And so as a dietitian, I have this unique role where I can actually make a difference in helping people make those lifestyle changes. And so I um, worked in different healthcare settings. I worked in inpatient, I worked in outpatient, and I just grew very frustrated with the proper, with the care and education given to this patient population. And just to give you an example, I worked at a community hospital in Boston, and I was only able to see my patients for about 20 to 30 minutes every three to four months. Um, and when wow. Yeah. Um, of course, we had an initial session, which was a little bit longer, like 45 minutes to an hour. But then trying to help someone make lifestyle changes when you only get to see them for 20 minutes every three months is really hard to do. And, you know, we're not de we're dealing with a life threatening condition. Type 2 mm -hmm. diabetes, as we just talked about, is life threatening. And I was just I grew really frustrated with this, with the healthcare system and I decided to kind of leave. I, I learned a lot. It was a really great experience working working with 
other dietitians, other diabetes care educators, but I decided to start my own private practice. And so I could really dedicate more time to working with this patient population. And so I did that, but I still kind of grew, I was still a little frustrated with private practice because I mean, we just talked about the numbers of how prevalent diabetes is and doing one-on-one sessions, I just felt like I wasn't making that much of an impact. And while I still do love doing one-on-one, I just wanted to do more. I knew I needed to do more. And that actually led me to social media and I started posting and educating. What what year are we talking about here? Okay, so we are talking about, I would say 2017. Okay. Yeah. So I started, that's when I um, started getting more experience or maybe 2018 is when I really started posting. Yeah. And um, started posting some stuff on social media and I really liked that, that avenue. And that's actually how I met Jose and he was doing something very similar. We both were educating about diabetes and we both um, were using a, um, a plant-based diet as our foundation of helping people make lifestyle changes. So we instantly just clicked right off the. And the- and and let me ask you this: What led you to a whole food plant-based diet as kind of the um, the solution here to mitigating type two diabetes? Yeah. So I, as a dietitian, I definitely was exposed to uh, the research behind plant-based diets. So I really, really, so that truly is something that they, they taught you, uh, in schooling. It depends, right? It depends what school you go to. It depends on the curriculum, my schooling. It did. I, I went to Tufts university, um, for my master's in nutrition science and they do a really good job exploring all the different research. Um, and then through my dietetic internship, which was at UC San Diego health, I also, um, learned a lot about it there as well. And so I was definitely exposed to it, but it did take some of my own digging as well to really, um, see the benefits for diabetes specifically when it comes to um, plant-based nutrition. And that's how, and then I just doing it myself too. Like I, I adopted a plant-based diet and I saw the results for myself. I does run in my family. So I really wanted to prevent diabetes myself. And I do think based off of the research, it's one of the most powerful ways to prevent it. And so um, that, that has led me to do it and it's helped me maintain very healthy glucose levels. Wonderful. So I'm going to get to you, Jose, in just a sec, but Diana, uh before we go to jose let me ask you if you don't mind me how old are you i'm 34 34 all right you are still a wonderful spring chicken that's great (laughs) thank you Uh all right jose how old are you and and why should we be listening to anything that you have to say (laughs) i am 32 born in Uh 1991 wow i have experience in the type 2 diabetes world and and plant-based nutrition for the last eight years or so. So let me go ahead and take back to the very beginning. Um, I am an exercise physiologist with a degree in exercise science from the University of Maryland. And right after graduation, I needed to get some exposure to the medical field. So I ended up working for these two physicians that practice um, lifestyle medicine. They were two doctors that were plant-based and they placed an emphasis on plant-based whole foods for the prevention and reversal of metabolic conditions like type 2 diabetes, like high cholesterol, hypertension, 
non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, you name it. So that was my first exposure to type 2 diabetes and to how lifestyle change, uh, more importantly, a plant-based whole food diet can have an effect on the prevention and reversal of this condition. Uh, now, let me tell you, Rip, on a typical week in this practice, we were seeing about 100 patients and 50 to 60% of them had some kind of metabolic condition, some kind mm -hmm. of metabolic ailment, which is right in line with the with the statistics that we were mentioning earlier today. So again, so, 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 so for our listeners, mm -hmm. what when you say some sort of a metabolic disorder, what exactly are some examples? We're talking about obesity. We're talking about high blood glucose, prediabetes, type 2 diabetes. We're talking about high cholesterol, hypertension, elevated liver enzymes, which is an indication of fatty liver disease. Uh, those are the main the main five which all stem from insulin resistance. By reversing insulin resistance, most of the time you take care of those conditions simultaneously. So that was my first ex exposure to seeing all of these conditions being truly reversed with a plant-based whole food diet. Out of this 100 patients, 50, 60 of them had some form or multiple of them. So it's comorbidities that again, they stem from insulin resistance. And that is the reason why most people present to, uh, to a clinic with one or two or three or all of those metabolic conditions. Um, but these doctors, when they were diagnosing somebody with uh, type two diabetes, instead of relying on medications right away, they gave them the choice of, mm. of, of, of a following a plant-based whole food diet to try it out first and then to come back in three months to see how, how they did. So I saw two main groups of patients. I saw the ones that actually followed the recommendations and those, those people would come back three months later, they would get their blood work redone and their A1C would be back to normal or very mm -hmm. close back to normal. Their cholesterol levels, back to normal range. Liver enzymes, back to normal range. Hypertension, gone. So th at that moment, I was mind blown about what I was seeing every single day in this practice. But unfortunately, I was also exposed to the other side of the picture. The patients that didn't really follow this approach, not because they didn't want to, I mean, who doesn't want to get better, but probably they didn't have a support system or a plan of action. So those group of people that wouldn't follow the approach, they would come back three months later, get blood work redone, and things would be the same or even worse. And it's at that point that the doctors had no other choice than to put them on medications. And it's a sad moment because most of the time that starts the downward spiral of prescription medications. So it's at that moment that I had a aha moment or a, a light bulb moment. And I, I decided to put the solution out there in, in front of people's faces. So I turned to social media and by then I was already eating more plant-based whole foods clearly because I was seeing the, the changes that people were, were um were clearly having after being on this diet. So I started posting my meals and, and I started posting exercise routines on Instagram. And back in the day, that was 2017, 2018, you were getting a thousand followers every single week. So the, the account started growing very, very fast. And again, that is how I met uh, Diana. And one day we were like, hey, we're basically doing the same thing, but you're doing the nutrition side of things. You're a dietitian. I am an exercise physiologist. And that is a type of knowledge that can help people reverse a metabolic condition. So let's join forces. And we, we call ourselves now the dynamic duo of type two diabetes. So, uh. <laughs> so we, we joined forces back then and the rest is history. Like five, six years have gone by. 
We now have a program that has helped over 1,500 people uh, improve their blood glucose levels. And just last year, we were given the opportunity to write a book, The Type 2 Diabetes Revolution, to hopefully reach millions of people now with this message. Right. And Jose, where are you originally from? Are you Peruvian? I'm Peruvian. Yes, I was born in Lima, Peru, lived there 16 years of my life. Wow. Good old Lima. So my wife and I, for our honeymoon, we flew into Lima. We went to Cusco. And then uh, we yeah. hiked, hiked the, uh, the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. Beautiful. I did that as well. Love it. <laughs> Good yeah. for, you. for your honeymoon or you just did it, period? No, not my honeymoon, <laughs> but um, after graduating from college, did it with my cousins. Right, right. Beautiful. It was really, I mean, it is like the eighth wonder of the world there, Machu Picchu. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Wow. Yeah, I was just there last year. Beautiful country. I mean, uh, I'm proud to be Peruvian, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and how is you, you have a cat named Gigi, right, Jose? <laughs> wow, the word, the word got around. I, I do have a cat named, named Gigi. Um, yeah. our, our dear friend, mutual friend, Adam Sutt, stayed uh, at my place a couple of weekends ago. And he met Gigi, he met Momo, <laughs> my, my dog. So we, we had a good time. That's wonderful. So <clears throat> let's get back to diabetes. I want you guys to educate myself and this audience on kind of the diabetes diagnostic criteria, starting with diabetes, like what is full-blown diabetes, what's pre-diabetes, what's normal as far as levels when it comes to A1C, a fasting glucose, and then an oral glucose um tolerance test which okay. can yeah. one, one of you or both of you run through those numbers for us so uh, let me just go ahead and explain a little bit better what is diabetes as a whole and then diana sure. can get into into the ranges i feel like it's going to make a little bit more sense that way so Good. diabetes is an, uh, an umbrella term to describe elevated chronically elevated blood sugar levels but within that umbrella of diabetes you have different forms of diabetes you have type 1 type 1.5, gestational diabetes, then you have pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, nowadays type 3 diabetes, which is Alzheimer's disease. Now, type 1 and 1.5. I'm going to stop you here. Mm -hmm. You just said something that I thought I think is fascinating. You know, I mean, get it, type 1, 1.5, gestational, type 2, and then you said type 3, mm -hmm. Alzheimer's. I mean, so is that, do we know now, like, that type 3 kind of is associated with dementia and Alzheimer's? There's no official definition right now. This, this is a term that has been recently coined. So it's insulin resistance of the brain, which okay. leads to dementia and Alzheimer's disease and so on. But it stems from insulin resistance. At least there are some connections right now, but the research is very early on that. Okay, good. All right, go, go forward. Okay. Thank you. All right. So type 1, type 1.5, those are autoimmune forms of diabetes. That basically means that uh, your immune system is attacking the beta cells that produce insulin in your pancreas. And over time, you lose insulin production. So with a lack of insulin, your blood sugar levels rise. Okay. Then you have prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, which are the lifestyle forms of diabetes. Now, prediabetes and type 2 diabetes are just medical terms to determine uh, at what range your blood glucose is falling. And I'll let Diana dive into those ranges. Um, but the root cause of those lifestyle conditions is insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is when your cells basically become blind to the signals of insulin. They stop responding to this hormone 
that opens the door of the cells for glucose to go in. And what research has been showing is that insulin resistance develops when we're eating an overconsumption of calories, mostly from saturated fats, from refined carbohydrates, from, from hyperpalatable foods that lead to this uh, positive caloric balance in our bodies, then we're putting uh, weight in our, in, our, um, in our fat cells that then spills over to our muscle cells and our liver cells. And that is when we encounter something called intrahepatocellular lipids, which basically means lipids that are deposited in our liver cells. And we have intramyocellular lipids, which are lipids that are deposit, deposited in our muscle cells. And our muscle and liver are not, they don't contain cells that are meant to store great quantities of fat. And that is when this insulin disruption starts at a cellular level. And that is the, the root cause of type two diabetes. So that is basically how, yeah. how it works. And so when you say that <clears throat> the muscle and the liver cells are not meant to sort to store basically excessive amounts of fat, is it are are different people more susceptible uh, to to type two diabetes, or is it purely a lifestyle created disease um, kind of based on our own making? So the root cause is our lifestyles, but there is different susceptibilities depending on your ethnicity. And there's a theory of something called our fat thresholds, our personal fat thresholds. And for example, uh, Caucasians can put a lot of weight without really experiencing insulin resistance until they are fairly big, until there's a lot of uh, fat deposition, uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, people from Asian descent who have a lower fat threshold and they become insulin resistant without really putting that much weight. And why do you think that is? I really think it's just evolution. It's the way that, uh, that it has played out over, over many thousands of years and we have ended up like this. But again, it is, uh, the root cause is insulin resistance and it's our lifestyle that we're living in any type of the world, any type of the, any part of the world that is westernized, where we're eating too many calories and not spending enough calories, we're becoming sedentary, we're not, we're not spending them to exercise. That is when this metabolic dysfunctions starts happening. So do you think that uh, Caucasians have kind of been, um, because we've been eating maybe more calorie rich foods for a longer period of time, evolution has allowed us to become a little bit more tolerant of uh of all the all the fat that that is a, a very good question and i will have to like dive into more research about that okay. but there is uh evolutionary um science and many books out there that basically describe that we have um our through our evolution we are wired to like foods that are very high in calorie density very high in, in, in fat for example and back in the day, it used to serve us because maybe we were not going to eat for a week between like hunting animals and hunting animals, right? And nowadays, we have an over surplus um, of calories in our, in our diets and in our environments. I can go down the street and I see Arby's, I see McDonald's, I see all of this um, calories for a dollar, right? And yeah. that's the problem that we're finding ourselves nowadays. nowadays. All yeah. right. So Diana, Diana, do you do you want to jump into the uh, the diagnostic criteria, or feel free yeah. to go wherever you want? 
Um, I'll just expand a little bit on that too, because there are other risk factors that do increase your risk for type two diabetes. And one of them Melissa talked about was excess body fat, especially in that abdominal area. That is a that is the strongest risk risk factor for type two diabetes. Um, and having excess body fat will always cause some degree of insulin resistance. Um, and then of course having prediabetes puts you at a greater risk for type two. Just age alone, so just being forty five years of age or older also puts you at a greater risk. And then there is that genetic component, like we were talking about, um, having an immediate family member, um, like a, a parent or a sibling also does put you at a greater risk. And we still aren't sure. We know that there's a genetic component, but the research is not clear as to what, why that is and what that is. But um, as the there's a famous quote, which um, uh, which genetic loads the gun, lifestyle pulls, pulls the trigger. Right. Um, well, a lot of there may be that genetic component, but lifestyle is really what's going to um, maybe it's going to really cause the type two diabetes from developing. Um, what, is then, it, what is it about uh, as we age? Like why, if you're over 45, what is it about as we age that makes us more susceptible? Um, muscle loss. And um, Jose, I'll let him talk about this as he really likes to dive into the muscle and exercise portion of, of it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So truly after 45, we are losing muscle mass, but we don't have to, as long as you are performing some kind of resistance training past the age of 45, you are basically becoming foolproof to type 2 diabetes and to insulin resistance. But the large majority of our society is, is not ex exercising, not even at the age of 20. So that is why we're becoming insulin resistant at, uh, at younger and younger ages. But as you, as you age, you lose muscle mass uh, at a faster rate, there's not that uh, high amounts of muscle synthesis uh, as we become older. And muscle is is one of the primary tools that we, our body needs in order to absorb glucose from the bloodstream and to put it into the muscle cell and use it as energy. So if we don't have enough of it, then quote unquote, our suctioning power of our muscle vacuum doesn't really work as well. Uh, you know, <clears throat> Jose and Diana, I read something recently from the Kaiser Institute. It was a study they did showing the average, the average adolescent in this country these days spends seven and a half hours on a screen every day and seven and a half minutes doing some sort of movement. Oh. So that's, uh, I mean, that's like atrocious. It is. so sad. Yeah. Oh, um, and yeah, and if nothing is done to... Um, to strengthen that muscle, the muscle loss or replace that muscle loss. And it usually is replaced by excess body fat, which mm -hmm. as we know now is a very strong risk factor for type two diabetes. And just to answer that question from before, if nothing is done to reverse insulin resistance and blood sugars continue to rise, um, then it is categorized as prediabetes and type two diabetes. And just to give you some some numbers um, for A1C, uh, prediabetes diagnosis is 5.7 to 6.4%. And then for type 2 diagnosis, it's 6.5% or above. And for fasting, prediabetes is 100 to 125 milligrams per deciliter. And then diabetes is um, 126 milligram per deciliter or above. And then the oral glucose tolerance test. Um, is or the glucose tolerance test is 140 to 199 for prediabetes and then 200 or above for type 2 diabetes. And and um, what exactly is an oral glucose tolerance test? Uh, yes, I had to do one um, recently for gestational diabetes when I was pregnant. Um, and it is not fun, but um, 
you basically drink um, a solution of glucose or, or yeah, it's um, a glucose solution, dextrose solution that you drink and you basically are tested for your blood sugar um, one hour after is every different clinics do it differently. Mine was one hour after and then two hours after to see how your blood sugar responds to such um, a large uh, solution of basically simple sh sugar. And then what's what? How like well, give me an uh, an idea? How how large of a solution are they giving you? Oh man, it's I mean I forget exactly how many milliliters, but it was a bottle, like a little a bottle, a mini bottle of. of but do you know do you know how many grams of sugar you were taking in? Is it like um, fifty or a hundred? Two hundred. The standard is usually seventy five for yes, an oral 75. glucose tolerance test. So yeah. seventy five grams. So that is the equivalent of almost. A little, maybe seven, 17, 18 teaspoons of sugar. Yes. Or to put it better, two Coca-Colas, regular Cokes, yeah. are going to contain 70 grams of sugar. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And then, so thank you for going through those numbers. But what? so what, what uh, designates normal, normal numbers, Diana? Yeah. Um, so normal for A1C is going to be a below 5.7%. For fasting blood sugar, it's going to be 99 milligrams per deciliter or below, and then 140 milligrams or below for the glucose tolerance test. Got it. And then what's like on the A1C, what's the highest that you guys have ever seen on an A1C? Personally, I have seen it as high as 17. And this was back when I was working with these two doctors. And quick story here. That, that lady was uh, from Latin American descent. She came to the practice, got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, 17% A1C. So she was scared, the most scared that I've seen somebody. She was crying. And since we both spoke, uh, both of us spoke Spanish, I had to teach her how to follow this plant-based whole food approach very correctly every single day. And she came back three months later and her A1C was about 9.0. So she was extremely grateful. She continued doing this plant-based approach, came back three months later, and she was off medications, A1C back to normal. Wow. <clears throat> That's phenomenal. You know, you know, the mayor of of New York, Eric Adams, had some really awful, awful type 2 diabetes that was ravaging him. His uh, A1C got as high as almost, uh, I think it was 14 uh 0.5 and yeah, he was able to get his get his down within i think three months below um 5.7 wow, just wow. by you know following you know what you guys are prescribing here uh today um okay so in the in the very beginning of the book you you tell the story of a woman named sarah just to kind of give an idea of a of a testimonial can you guys remember that story at all? And can you share that? Um, yeah. So we did change all the names of um, <laughs> our... So to, to, to protect the, uh, the guilty, yes. <laughs> yes, we want to protect people. I mean, we could definitely talk about a lot of different stories. We've had so many amazing case studies that have that we've been able to... to um, to now share with people. Um, one of them in particular I talk about, she was um, trying to get an immigration visa approved and her doctor wouldn't give her the okay from the health um, standpoint. And she, he said, you have, you have type two diabetes, you need to get your A1C bef under control before I approve this. And so she had basically 12 weeks, the doctor gave her 12 weeks and she found our program, 
did our program and was able to drop her A1C, um, I believe it was like in the 10% to 5.5%. And she also dropped a, um, a, a lot of weight in the process too. She got her fasting blood sugar levels down. She went back to her doctor and her doctor was shocked, just could not believe it. Was just like, mm -hmm. what did you do? What are these mm -hmm. numbers? And um, she, she told him and he's like, you know what? continue what you're doing. It's clearly working. This is something you should do for the rest of your life. And she got her visa approved and she's still continuing this, this lifestyle, this dietary pattern. Yeah. Loved hearing stories like that. So in your guys' opinion is type two diabetes, cause is it, is it, would you say it's fair to say that you, what you guys really specialize in is pre and type two diabetes? Correct. Correct. Okay. Is this something that can be reversed? Do you just place it into remission? Um, what's the correct terminology? Yeah, that's that's a great question because recently, I believe it was maybe two years ago, the um, the different diabetes associations kind of came together and create and came up with a consensus about the proper terminology, and they said that the proper way to call it is to place diabetes into remission, type mm. 2 diabetes into remission. So that is the proper terminology. Um, however, we do believe that you can reverse type 2, we, the root cause, which is insulin resistance, and a lot of our patients, a lot of members who go through our program believe they can fully reverse type 2 diabetes, um, although the terminology is place it into remission, they will tell us, like, I've reversed my diabetes. Like, I no longer have diabetic numbers anymore. My my blood levels are in the normal range, and I don't take any medication. So what else would you call it, right? Yeah, like, right, right. Um, well, let me ask you guys. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, Rip, here's the thing. These people that at some point were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, they're able to eat carbohydrates again, the healthy kind, the whole complex carbohydrates without seeing crazy blood glucose fluctuations. So one, they're able to reduce their A1C to non-diabetic levels. They are controlling with no medications. Their fasting blood glucose is back to normal and they have restored glucose tolerance. What is this? This is, I mean, it's true reversal of a condition, but if we wanna go ahead and be correct, remission of type 2 diabetes. Do you think there's a difference in somebody's mindset when you say, hey, we're going to put this into remission or we're going to reverse this or we're going to treat this as I had Dr. Campbell on the podcast. You know, I've had him on a couple of times and he's like, basically, no, what we're doing is we're treating these diseases. Okay. We're treating the causation of these diseases. He really is was adamant that we use that term treat. Mm -hmm. Um and so I, it kind of irks me that, okay, you're putting it into like, you're, you're putting it into the garage for just a little bit, but we never know when it might pop back out and, you know, spring up in your body. And, and the terminology or the consensus that they came up with is that remission means when your A1C is below a 6.5% for at least three months without medication. So at 6.5% below 6.5%, you're still, you still may be dealing with prediabetes. Yeah. Um, so I think reversal or treatment, it takes it one step further where you're achieving normal blood sugar levels without um, diabetes medications. Right. Well, you guys, let's talk about some of the institutions, if you can rattle some off the top of your, your head that are now recommending a whole food plant-based diet for people that have pre or type 2 diabetes. 
Yeah. So, I mean, the American Diabetes Association now recognizes that a plant-based dietary pattern is an effective way to treat type 2 diabetes. Um, The American Heart Association, in their 2020 guidelines, they did say, um, I believe it was their 2020 guidelines, they did recommend people consume mostly plant-based proteins. And again, like if you have type 2 diabetes, you're at a much greater risk for heart complications. So that is very important. I mean, the Canadian Diabetes Association has released a statement saying that they fully um, support this plant-based dietary pattern for type 2 diabetes. The American Association of Clinical Endocrinology actually encourages their clinicians to recommend a primarily plant-based um, diet. And explain to me, what what is a uh, endocrinologist for people that don't know? Why is that association uh, jumping on this bandwagon? Yeah, so endocrinologists are pe- are doctors who specialize in in hormone hormone health, and so because um, <clears throat> our our diabetes is something is is considered a hormonal um, condition, right? So insulin is a hormone that is released by our pancreas that helps control blood sugar levels. Um, people usually are treated by endocrinologists if they have type two diabetes. And let's not forget. The American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Oh, that was going to be my my last one too. Right. Um, absolutely, they say that for the the long term remission of type two diabetes, um, really adopting a plant predominant um, diet is the way to go. Okay, so you just said something that uh, is very important. You said plant predominant. Mm-hmm. You didn't say plant exclusive. And I know that in reading your book, chapter two, you guys talk all about your approach. And your approach is 80-20. So talk to me, why is it 80-20, not 100%? Um, yeah, so while we, we've we had a few years working with people and we found that a lot of people were just not ready to go 100% plant-based. And we didn't want to lose those people. We still wanted to be able to help them. So we said, you know what, let's start a little slower. Let's start with just incorporating more plant-based meals, plant-based proteins into your diet. You don't need to go zero to a hundred percent. And that approach seemed to really resonate with people. And if we can just get people to eat more plant-based meals, I think that's a huge win. Um, So we don't want people to feel like they have to be a hundred percent plant-based, although we totally advocate for that as well. And we love a hundred percent plant-based and we think you will see the best results if you could follow it 100% plant-based, but we just, we didn't want to scare people away from this approach. Got it. Mm -hmm. And you guys talk about calorie density versus nutrient density. Explain that to our listeners. Um, Okay. Yeah. So calorie density. So we really focus on helping people adopt more of a nutrient dense diet, which is and by definition, a whole food plant-based diet. And this type of diet, nutrient dense diet, is going to be very rich in nutrients. So it's going to be rich in things like vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants, all things that have been shown to improve glycemic control. And they're also just going to be lower in calories since they're not going to really contain um, a lot of processed elements. So they're not going to contain a lot of like refined um, carbs, added sugars, saturated fat, they're going to be lower in calories. So therefore you're able to actually eat a lot more of these foods. You're able to eat a higher volume of food, get more nutrient dense density and have more, be more satiated. Um, 
you can eat a lot more of these foods, which is going to help to fill you up and then keep you full for longer. Whereas calorie dense foods are going to be foods that are going to be very more ultra processed, um, a lot of animal based foods. Um, so foods, think about foods that are really, really um, ultra processed. So things like breakfast, sugary breakfast cereals, chips, ice cream, processed meats like hot dogs, deli meats, sugary drinks, all of those are going to be examples of more calorie dense food. And they're very hyper palatable. So it's so easy yeah. to over consume them. And we know that the overconsumption of calories is what can lead to insulin resistance. Right. So you're a huge fan of eating calorie light, nutrient dense foods that are high in fiber, high in antioxidants. Both these things, the high in fiber, the high in antioxidants, increase your glycemic control and your insulin sensitivity. You talk a lot about low and saturated fat. We got, we got the keto, we got the paleo. These guys seem to be like advocates of saturated fat. What exactly is wrong with saturated fat and what kind of fats do we want to be consuming? Hmm. I would love to go uh, deep into this rip because every, every week I get at least a hundred questions about the ketogenic diet on our social media channels and I go on rants about it. So unfortunately, um, the first exposure that a type 2 diabetic gets to nutrition is a low-carb, high-fat approach, the typical ketogenic diet. As soon as they get diagnosed, the doctor sometimes doesn't say anything about nutrition, so they resort to Google and social media. And the first thing is going to be a ketogenic diet is going to help you lower yeah. your blood sugar values. You are changing that. We are changing that. So hopefully the plant-based diet is going to start popping up way more eventually. But um, people, make, people make that mistake because there is uh, a confusion in the pathophysiology of insulin resistance. So when, when people are already insulin resistant and they eat any kind of carbohydrate, even if it's the, the refined carbohydrates or the whole complex carbohydrates, they are going to see crazy blood glucose fluctuations. But that doesn't mean that all carbohydrates are bad for you. So there's two types and people have the uh, a lack of nutrition knowledge. I, I don't blame them. I mean, nobody's studying nutrition um, for fun nowadays, but there's two types of carbohydrates, refined and the whole complex carbohydrates, right? So the problem is that when both of them are giving you blood sugar issues, then you lump all of them into the bad category and you say, all carbohydrates are bad for me. Bananas, potatoes are bad for me. Vegetables, whole grains are bad for me because they're raising my blood glucose levels. And what people fail to realize is that the bananas are not giving people to diabetes. The potatoes are not giving people type 2 diabetes. It's the insulin resistance that has developed at a cellular level that are making you intolerant to those carbohydrates. So then you have to ask yourself, what, why is this happening? Why are my cells insulin resistant? Is it truly the banana? Or maybe I have eaten some other foods that made me insulin resistant. And like we touched at the, at the very beginning, those foods are high in saturated fat and overconsumption of calories, uh, refined carbohydrates that made that person insulin resistant. So here's the thing. People avoid all carbohydrates because they, they raise their, their blood glucose levels. But when people start focusing on a diet that is lower on saturated fat, lower on fat content as a whole, void of refined carbohydrates, their insulin sensitivity increases. Mm -hmm. 
So they are able to eat bananas again and fruits again and whole grains again without experiencing these crazy blood glucose fluctuations. Um, and that is the aha moment that people get when they join our program, when they read our book, or when when they they come to to um, plant strong social media. Like people start realizing that they shouldn't be afraid of carbohydrates. The carbohydrates are not bad for them. But unfortunately, uh, too many people out there are preaching that this ketogenic approach that are not truly making people insulin sens sensitive. Because you can only be insulin sensitive if your blood glucose is uh, normal or it has a, blood, uh, a normal blood glucose response on a glucose challenged state. And mm -hmm. next time that you meet somebody that has uh, that is following a keto diet, ask them if they can eat a banana or a potato without seeing a crazy blood glucose rise. They can't. They are still insulin resistant at a physiological level. So people make that mistake. Unfortunately, they dive deep into this ketogenic diet and they become more insulin resistant over time. And over what period of time, let's say I've got full-blown type 2 diabetes. I want to eat a banana and not have my blood sugar go crazy. When I follow your program in the type 2 diabetes revolution, Typically, on average, how long before I can eat a banana, a peach, a pear, something like that, and uh, and be be okay, be insulin sensitive? It it really depends on your levels of insulin resistance. So we have seen it as quickly as a couple of weeks, maybe a week, to as long as five, six months of being on this approach to truly be insulin sensitive and being able to tolerate carbohydrates. And it's also highly dependent on how much insulin that person is naturally producing, which is dependent on how long they have been living with type right. 2 diabetes. Got it. Um, so the longer that somebody has been living with the type 2 diabetes, is it fair to say the probably, probably the less insulin they're pumping out of their pancreas? Yes. So the longer that you live with type 2 diabetes, the more damage that you do to your beta cells to produce insulin. Um, over time, these this cells become tired of overproducing large amounts of insulin, and they go through a process called apoptosis, programmed cell death, and they start dying out. So when you have a, a lower mass of, this, of these beta cells, you produce less and less and less insulin. So your insulin production goes very low over time. And, um, and that poses a big problem because we need insulin in order to open the doors of the cells. Uh, so glucose can can go in there. So we tell people to get a test called a C-peptide test in order to yes. determine their levels of endogenous insulin production. And that will greatly determine what is the best course of action for them. Because sometimes they're going to need lifestyle change and insulin forever if their if their insulin levels, if their uh, natural insulin production is very low. But I would tell you, this is a statistic that I don't really know, but I would be willing to bet 80% or more of people with type 2 diabetes have more than enough insulin production. As a matter of fact, excess insulin production. So what they need to do is become more insulin sensitive so that insulin starts working again. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. All right, let's move on. So you guys have written a whole section with kind of a four-week meal plan and you've got grocery list, you've got breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's a pretty darn trick, right? For four whole weeks. Um, anything you want to tell me about the four-week meal plan? Sure. Yeah. We get asked all the time for meal plans, all the time. And so we thought, you know what, we should just include 
some meal plans in our book, and that's why we 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 included a four week meal plan, and we use um, the foods our recipes from from the book, um, and we wanted to include grocery shopping lists. And one thing that we also had come across too in the last few years working with people is that when they follow meal plans, there's a lot of food waste involved with with meal plans. And so what we wanted to do was really minimize the food waste, especially with food costs being so high these days. And so what we did in the meal plans is that we um, we created them so that your what you're eating, um, any leftover ingredients is also going to serve as snacks. And we also give tips on how to reduce that food waste. So for example, if a recipe calls for carrots and you buy a bag of carrots, we will have tips on what to do with those leftover carrots. So we'll say like pair that with some hummus for your snacks. Um, uh, carrots last um, X amount of days in the fridge, so you can use it for next week. Um, so we were really, really um, just, we wanted to make this meal plan r really just easy for people to follow. And again, like just reduce the food waste involved. Mm, yeah, that's really, really nice. Um, so let me ask you a couple of questions. What are your guys' thoughts? And then I want to dive into some of the recipes. But what are some of your thoughts on coffee and tea? And in, 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 in relation to pre and type 2 diabetes, is it get the thumbs up, thumbs down, or is there a caveat there? So um, the overall body of evidence shows that coffee and tea are actually can reduce your risk of type 2 diabetes. I think what we really need to focus on is what we're putting in our coffee and our tea. So sugar, obviously, is not going to be the greatest thing if you have type 2 diabetes. You know, if you can do it without sugar, great. But if you need to replace it with something, we recommend um, a more natural, non-nutritive sweetener like a stevia or a monk fruit. Um, so I think, you know, focusing on what you're putting in and same with the creamer. A lot of people tend to put like really high saturated fat creamers in their coffee. We recommend using a non-dairy milk or a non-dairy creamer that's unsweetened. Got it. Talk to me about what drinks to avoid on your program. So sugary sweetened beverages is definitely a big one. So anything, any kind of a drink with sugar in it, you definitely want to avoid. Um, these drinks aren't going to have any fiber that you get from, let's say, a smoothie. At least a smoothie has some fiber. So it's going to slow down the absorption of glucose. Sugary sweetened beverages is just pure sugar without much um much nutrient nutrition. So definitely avoid those. Um, and that includes things like um, sodas, Gator energy drinks, um, sports drinks, juices, etc. Okay. Um, what about fruits and also dates? You guys a fan of fruit and dates? We are. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And so like, can I eat 15 pieces of fruit a day? Is that cool with you guys? <laughs> so if you become very insulin sensitive, then you are not going to have a problem eating 15 pieces of fruit a day. It truly depends on your level of, of insulin sensitivity. Uh, when people are coming to us, uh, we're not probably not going to recommend 15 pieces of fruit a day. We're probably going to start with the low glycemic index fruits. Uh, we're going to focus more on... What are those? What are those? What are the low yeah. glycemic index fruits? We're talking about berries, mostly berries. Uh-huh. Berries, apples, apricots, uh, apricots. Um, oranges, mm -hmm. apples. But, but then if you talk about the banana, for example, those are a little bit higher on the glycemic index. That could uh, give people some issues at first, but then they become insulin sensitive and uh, they, they, don't, they don't pose an issue anymore. What about the plantain? How's the plantain? Is that the same as the banana or is it a little different profile? 
That's a good question. Do you know? Well, so if you have a plantain that's not fully ripe, so an unripe plantain, um, it actually has a lot of resistant starch in it. And resistant starch acts very similar to fiber and where it is not digested or absorbed. So it does have a more favorable um, glycemic index compared to if you were by a, a very ripe plantain. Right. And so speaking of resistant starches, what's your view on potatoes? Yeah, I mean, they do tend to have a little bit higher of a glycemic index. Um, and so if you are someone who is trying to control your blood sugar levels, if you have type 2 diabetes, we do recommend um, some tips and tricks when it comes to your potatoes. So you can actually manipulate the glycemic index and the resistant starch content of them by boiling them and then cooling them. And just by doing that, you are actually increasing the resistant starch and lowering the glycemic index. So we give little tips and tricks like that in our book. Right. And, you know, you know, I'm good friends and I know you guys are with Robbie and Cyrus with Mastering oh, yeah. Diabetes. And, you know, yeah. those guys probably are, you know, piling down 15 to 20 pieces of fruit a day. <laughs> more than that. More than <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> more, more, more than yeah. that. And, uh, you know, they're type one diabetics. Uh, but I think that the, um, I think the point stands that once you become insulin sensitive, mm -hmm. you can you can start to do some crazy things like eat, eat crazy amounts of fruit. Uh, absolutely. I mean, and just to, to touch on something that we haven't uh, talked about, uh, Cyrus and Robbie also do a lot of exercise. They yeah. are exercise freaks. <laughs> and when it comes to, to physical movement, um, it increases our insulin sensitivity. So when you pair that up with plant-based whole food nutrition, you become a very insulin sensitive human. Well, speaking of that, I know that you guys are, or, or, or maybe it's you, Jose, but you're both, I think, a fan of taking a walk after a meal. Um, this helps helps drive the sugar into the cells? 100%. That is the, one of the first things that we recommend when people come to us is just take a walk after breakfast, after lunch, after dinner. All it takes is 15 to 20 minutes. And it has to be, you don't even have to like go on a brisk walk. It, it can be low intensity. And there was a, a research, uh, it was a randomized controlled trial. It was a crossover trial. And the results are drastic changes in your A1C and fasting blood glucose three wow. months and six months down the line, just by walking after meals compared to one single bout of 45 minutes um, ah. in, in, in a random time of the day. So exercising after meals has a larger effect on your blood glucose. Isn't that something? Um, mm -hmm. Diana, talk to me because you guys, I know are a fan of beans, right? Oh, yes. We love, <laughs> we love legumes. Um, what do you love about the bean? <laughs> oh, what don't I love about a bean? Um, well, <laughs> do, you, do you love beans more than Dan Butner? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I eat a lot of beans. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, I mean, they're just, they're a superfood. They're the most underrated superfood out there. Um, people are not eating enough beans. I mean, look at look at Dan Buettner's research. People who live the longest, one of the things they all had in common was the consumption of beans. Um, and one thing I just love about beans is their fiber intake, rather their fiber content, right? So as we know, like fiber is just so, so important to um, type two diabetes health because one of the reasons is it's not digested of, or absorbed in our body. And this helps to really slow down the absorption of sugar from, from food. And it'll help minimize blood sugar spikes after eating. And then long-term research shows that fiber, a fiber-rich diet will also um, 
improve your A1C, your fasting blood sugar, your fasting insulin, and improves um, insulin resistance. So fiber is just, there's just so many benefits to it. And beans are an, an amazing source of fiber. And the research shows that when we replace red meat with beans, it can really, really help treat type 2 diabetes because not only are you, number uh, one, increasing your fiber intake, but you're drastically slashing your saturated fat intake as well. Bravo. And then what do we do for people that, you know, they don't have an amazing gut garden? What can they do to minimize the gas that is created from beans? Yes. So my best piece of advice is to start slow. So if you are not used to eating beans, don't start with a full cup or even half a cup. Start with tablespoons of beans. Um, So like a tablespoon a day and see how your body adjusts to that. Another thing you could do is really soak your beans for longer. So if you're using dried beans, let them soak for longer than the 12 hours that's recommended. Um, And then you can cook them and by doing so, by allowing them to soak, you're helping to break down some of that that fiber that may be a little harder to digest for you. Mm-hmm. What are your What are your guys' thoughts on soy and tempeh? Are those a thumbs up or thumbs down on the type two diabetes revolution? Major thumbs up. All right, <laughs> tell me why. Tell me why. What do you like about soy and tempeh? Well, just similar to beans, soy is a fantastic plant-based protein, and it's so good to replace meat with it. Um, and again, like you're reducing the saturated fat content, you're you're having some fiber with it, but you're also able to easily reach your protein needs with soy and tempeh. Just a very good source of of that um, that protein. And again, research just shows it can it has. When you eat a diet that's rich in um, soy products or includes soy products, it can really help reduce your risk of type 2 diabetes. So you're okay the fact that, you know, soy and tempeh are about 40% fat, not a, not a problem? Um, well, when you're adopting more of a whole food plant-based diet, you're drastically reducing your fat intake and your overall calorie intake. So I think there's definitely some room for some plant-based sources of fat in there. Right, right. Great answer. <laughs> so, so let's talk for a sec about olive oil versus olives, because I think this is a, you guys do a beautiful job. You have a beautiful chart in the book that it helps illustrate for people calorie density versus nutrient density. So if you guys can remember, like what's the difference between, between a half uh, a cup of olive oil as far as calories and a half a cup of olives? Yeah. So calorie wise, I mean, one tablespoon of olive oil has 120 calories. There's four tablespoons and a quarter cup. So whoever wants to do that math for me. Um, And so it's just a ton of calories, whereas a half a cup of olives. Oh, gosh. um, I I know I I have the numbers right here. So yeah. So So half a cup of olive oil is almost a thousand calories. Yeah. And a half a cup of just olives. 86 calories. Look at, I mean, almost a 12-fold difference. Not just that, but they also contain fiber. And a lot of other things. Yep. Right? A lot of other things. Antioxidant, water, minerals, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, so um, you guys, y- your book right here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold it up here. So Type 2 Diabetes Revolution, 100 plus recipes and four-week meal plan, I want to talk about maybe 10 of your recipes here, all right? 
Let's start with this. You guys, I want to say, who who developed these recipes and who took the photos? Because they're, <laughs> they're gorgeous and really let me, nice. Let me tell you a story about this, uh, Rip. So developing all of the recipes took about a year. And <laughs> Diana is really, really good at being precise with the measurements of every single recipe. She was uh, using different spices, using a little bit less, a little bit more. And then we, we came up with the perfect amounts for every single recipe in this book. Then I flew to Puerto Rico, where, where Diana was uh, living at the moment, and yeah. had a four-day uh, extravaganza of cooking about 70 dishes. We had a photographer. We had food stylists. We had, I kid you not, 10 people running around in the kitchen. And Diana was like, conducting the whole orchestra it was a great yeah. time I, I was just eating but uh <laughs> it was a it was a great it was a great uh three days four days of uh taking all of these beautiful pictures we, we truly believe that people are uh eating with their eyes as well yes well diana and jose i have to say i'm greatly disappointed that i didn't get an invitation to this event <laughs> <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe on the next book all right let's start with this so this on page 108 we have the acai berry bowl right here. Uh, and talk to me, like you guys talk about how most asa, acai bowls have like 21 to 62 grams of added sugar. Yours like has almost none of that. Mm -hmm. um, like talk to me about an acai berry bowl. Yeah. So, I mean, as you said, most acai bowls that you buy are going to be loaded with sugar. So usually it's sweetened acai, which is just the addition of sugar to the acai. Um, we wanted to um, still provide a healthy option because acai is a type of berry that is very, it's a very powerful antioxidant. So it really can help reduce inflammation in our body, help protect ourselves from damage. And so we wanted to be able to offer this, but a healthier version. And so we actually just sweetened it with whole food, whole fruit. Um, so as you can see, you just blend together some acai, unsweetened acai, that is, with yeah. some blueberries and strawberries, and that you get the sweetness from those berries without having to add added sugar to it. Mm. All right, I'm moving on to page 112 right now. This is the eggless egg cups right yeah. here. I love this recipe. Oh, I mean, I just took one look and I'm like, I want to pout. I mean, I just want to like dive into five of those here in about three minutes. Um, <laughs> you mean what what gives these such that incredible yellow color yeah so that's going to be a combination of the nutritional yeast and the turmeric in there and it, those two ingredients help mimic the color of regular eggs and what are you using instead of eggs tofu tofu oh, yeah and okay. it, it, it's really incredible it i, I it tastes like eggs it has the same consistency as eggs like i my my husband is not plant-based and he tried these and he was blown away by them you are married to a man who is not plant-based like talk to me how is that working for you <laughs> i mean he only cook he only eats what i cook so he i would say he's plant predominant because of that um well, well. He, i would say he's probably like you know 70 percent plant-based um because I'm the one cooking in our household. That's incredible. <laughs> Diana, I'm going to take a little bit of a detour here because I don't know if I could be married to somebody that eats chicken or fish or, or red meat because I just find it to be absolutely so 
gross. <laughs> and, and I wouldn't want it in the house. It's never in our house because oh. I agree. It is. I couldn't, I could never cook that. So I don't cook those things for him. Um, I cook plant-based and he eats what I will cook. Okay. <laughs> he has no choice. <laughs> so does he like eating the white bean and lemon kale soup that's on page 337? Yes. He liked that. Um, he was around for the photo shoot as well. So he helped Jose <laughs> was eating all the leftovers. <laughs> uh -huh. And um, what do you love about, um, let's see, the white beans? I guess it's the it's that uh, the resistance starts in the fiber, right? Yeah. Mm. Well, that looks really nice. And it's just a different type of bean. It has a slightly different taste to it. So it's, we wanted to include a variety of different beans in case, you know, some, we get a lot, uh, we get told a lot that people don't necessarily like chickpeas. So, okay, we wanted to be able to give people different options. Yeah. But for the most okay. part, they're all interchangeable. The yeah. People, Go ahead. Uh, people think that a plant-based diet is just eating salads. That's yeah. a, that's an unfortunate thing that like we run across like all the time. People are like, no, I cannot be eating like a rabbit all day, every day. This this book just tells people the diversity that you can achieve with a plant-based whole food diet and all yeah. the recipes that you can make. Totally. You like like right now I'm in the main section, main dishes. Before that, there were you have side dishes, you have breakfast, you've got some amazing looking burgers. I'm looking at these, these veggie packed millet cakes with a oh, yeah. dipping sauce. Mm -hmm. So talk to yeah. me a little bit about millet. That's a grain that I don't use that often. But um, are you, I mean, I know it's an ancient grain. Are you guys, is it, is it have some particular property about it that is diabet diabetic friendly? I mean, for the most part, it's um, very high in protein and, and fiber. So both of those are great nutrients for, for diabetes. But then research just shows that millet in particular is a really great grain for, for type 2 diabetes. Hmm. Um, and I'm sure the fiber and the protein really play into that. Lovely. All right. So on page 190, turn your books, page 190 class. Because on 190, so you've got the crispy chickpeas, five ways. And of course, the reason, I mean, chickpeas to me are so underutilized. Uh, I was hanging out with Cyrus. He usually stays with, with me when he's in Austin. He literally will snack on cans of chickpeas, as you probably are well aware. He needs to try your crispy chickpeas. So what are yeah. they what are they crispied with and what kind of seasonings can we expect here? Yeah, so the the three ways are we have a ranch style which is just apple cider vinegar, dill, parsley, garlic, onion powder, um, salt and pepper. We yeah. have a salt and vinegar which is with white wine vinegar and some salt. And then a nacho cheese, in air quotes here, um, which is nutritional yeast, paprika, onion powder, chili powder, and salt. And so what you do is basically, it, this recipe definitely took um, a lot of trial and error because it is hard to get chickpeas crispy if you don't know the proper technique. Um, and one of that, those techniques is trying to remove as many of the skins as possible. So I don't know if you're like familiar with chickpeas that have a little bit of a skin, but you can get it off pretty easily by just rolling it on, um, in, a, in a dish towel. And so you definitely want to do that first to get as many skins off. And then you just put it in the, in the oven or air fryer and crisp it up. And so these are, you, so you take the chickpeas right out of the can, put them in a dish towel and then roll them. Is that right? You drain and rinse them, and then you roll them in the dish towel. 
Okay, so but they don't have to be completely dry when you start rolling them. Um, uh, no, no, that's, or you want to like, pat them dry, remove some of that moisture, but they don't need to be completely dry. All right, good, good little chicky, good little chicky. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I bet some people think, oh my God, I can't ever have another dessert. But you guys have quite the incredible spread when it comes to desserts here. And, you know, I'm a chocolate lover, so I'm going to zero in on three of your desserts. The first is your chocolate-covered Snicker dates on 206. Mm. All right? Enough. Yeah, I mean, really. I mean, I, I can eat these, and this is going to help my, uh, my insulin sensitivity? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what like compared to everything is relative in nutrition, right? Are you eating this? Or are you eating Snickers? And if you're eating this, this is going to be a much better option for you. And of course, everything in moderation, you don't want to overconsume these either. Right. But yeah, these are going to be a great healthier option. And listen, uh, page 208, I'm making this tonight. And I'm kidding you not. I'm going to post Ooh. it on social. Look at this. Yeah. This is a chocolate chia pudding on 208. Mm -hmm. That to me is what is that bananas with does that have a little bit of walnuts on top? Crushed walnuts, yep. And then what's what's the white cream? That's not whipped cream, is it? No, it's a plant-based uh, uh, plant yogurt. A yogurt. Do you guys, like, talk to me. What's a plant-based yogurt that doesn't have added sugars and is clean? So we have a whole appendix for that, actually, in the back <laughs> of the book. Yeah. So we actually go through some of our favorite brands. It's not a comprehensive list, but just some of our brands that we like. Um, and so for the yogurts, if you turn to page 250, you can see that Kite Hill has a good um, oh. and almond milk yogurt. They also have a Greek style yogurt that is good. Um, so Delicious has an unsweetened coconut milk yogurt. Um, and silk unsweetened vanilla almond milk yogurt and then there's a few others as well got it all right we're almost done here with the recipes that i'm going to point out here page 214 you got me with fudgy so here <laughs> here's the fudgy brownies only really four ingredients like what are the four ingredients and and how can the audience make these tomorrow <laughs> yes so it's just bananas, ripe bananas. That's going to help sweeten the recipe. So it's three ripe bananas, um, half a cup of peanut butter. That's going to help bind everything together. Uh -huh. Then you're going to have half a cup of 100% cocoa powder. So that's the chocolatey Ooh. goodness. Um, the, you could do about a teaspoon or, or more of baking powder. That's going to help give it just a little bit more texture. Um, and then just a pinch of salt. And you basically just blend... Um, kind of mash that all together until you get a nice consistency. And then you put it in the oven at 350 for 25 to 30 minutes. Fudgy brownies. Let's do it. <laughs> and you can add some in this picture. We had added some walnuts. So you can add some walnuts if you want a little bit of a crunch to it. Wow. So um, sauces, you guys a big fan of sauces and stuff like that. Yes. Oh, yes, because we do we do want people to minimize or at least reduce their oils in their diet, just because, as we mentioned before, it can be so easy to overconsume oils and it can be a major contributor to calories in the diet. Yeah. So sauces and dressings are such a great way to flavor your dishes without having to use oils. So we use a lot of nuts and seeds, mix those up, blend those up with other um, ingredients to to create our dressings so here's like you guys have a whole bunch of them here's just one this green goddess drizzle looks god goddessly like uh, <laughs> what, 
what would I put this over? What would you recommend? Oh, I mean, really anything. You could put it on top of a salad. You could do a gr on top of a grain bowl. Um, or if you're like, we have um, one recipe in the book that's called one pan chickpeas and rainbow veggies. And so oh. that could be a really good one to put all over that. Wow. And when is this book available right now for people to purchase and how can they get it? It will be available on November 7th and it is available wherever books are sold. So that includes Amazon, Walmart, Target, Barnes and Nobles, um, some local independent bookstores as well carry it. Fantastic. And how much, how long did it take you guys to write this book and do all the recipes? Um, over a year. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. Wow. Good. The, the photography, like I said, we did between 60 to 70 photos. We photographed them in two and a half days. It was, it was madness. <laughs> I, 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 I actually, I understand because I've done the same thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, what's next for you guys? Do you just kind of hanging on right now? I mean, waiting for the, the book, the book to launch. Well, right now we're doing a uh, lot of podcasts. We're doing a lot of Instagram lives. And uh, what is next for this book? Actually, it's going to be translated to Spanish. Last week, I, I just finished the Spanish translation. Uh, and we're going to have the opportunity to spread this message in Latin American countries now. So I'm very happy about that. Fabulous, man. Well, Diana and Jose, it's been an absolute pleasure spending time with you today. Thank you for you know, your, your work with type two diabetes, trying to revolutionize it. And, um, and all the people out there, literally the, the tens of millions of people that are struggling with prediabetes, type two diabetes, and don't even know it. That to me is the, uh, the very, very sad thing, but man, you guys, mm, great book. You guys are wonderful human beings. I hope to see you in person sometime soon. Thank you, Riff. Thank you All for right. having us. Give me a Thank virtual you. virtual fist bump on the way out. Ready? Boom. Boom. <laughs> All right. Over and out. Thank right you. Now. See you. Bye-bye. You can learn more about Jose and Diana at type2diabetesrevolution.com. And I'll be sure to put a link to that in today's show notes. Their book is currently out and available and even if you don't have high blood sugar, prediabetes, or type 2 diabetes, perhaps you know someone who does and may find it useful for all the information and the delicious recipes. I recommend giving it a read. Thanks, as always, for listening, and always keep it plant strong. Thank you for listening to the Plant Strong Podcast. You can support the show by taking a quick minute to follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Leaving us a positive review and sharing the show with your network is another great way to help us reach as many people as possible with the exciting news about plants. Thank you in advance for your support. It means everything. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. 
Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr., and Ann Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>